Okay, let me uh, pass out this uh, study sheet and you'll notice that this is not for Genesis. This is for Romans. Uh, and it's another, uh, another overview. I passed out an overview like this uh, a few weeks ago. Does everybody have one of these? Uh, okay. Uh, and that's just kind of help you uh, think through the book of Romans. How many need? Two? One? Um, that's to kind of help you think through the book of Romans chapter by chapter and I'd encourage you uh, we still have about three weeks before we're starting Romans uh, but uh, it's a it's good time for you to take some time just to read through the book uh, I recommend that you try to do it in maybe one or two or three settings just read large portions at a time sometimes you make better connections uh, if you'll read through large section of Scripture at once, uh, such as the book of Romans, you'll see connections and relationships that you won't otherwise see. So I'd encourage you to do that sometime over the next couple, three weeks. And that first study sheet is just to kind of help you think through each chapter as you read through it or after you've read through it. And then the second study sheet, the yellow one, uh, is just to kind of help you think about some more of the specifics of Romans. Just kind of get your mind thinking about the book and some of the things that are in the book and familiarizing yourself with it so that when we actually start to study, uh, you'll kind of feel like you're on, uh, on familiar turf. So uh, that's the purpose of those and uh, just use them as, uh, as you find them beneficial. I do not... Ha- yes? Go ahead. I'm going to have to leave a little early, so I want to tell you before I left. What a great job you've done on Genesis. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I've uh, <laughs> I have loved the book. I've always loved Genesis, and I have loved going through it. Uh, and we are we will be on it today, and then next week we'll we'll do kind of a closing overview review type thing uh, on the book but but it's been very helpful book for me to study again and and it's really changed my outlook (laughs) on several things uh, as I've uh, studied at this time and and I think I've really grown in my faith and my understanding uh, uh, myself so I've you know I've really tremendously benefited but I appreciate your your words and your encouragement that's that's good to hear and it's my hope that we'll feel the same way about Romans uh, I, I was uh, had breakfast with Ryan yesterday and and uh, we were talking about Romans and I said you know I, I think often I think many times we've we've done more damage to the book of Romans by the way we've handled it and the way we viewed it uh, so that I think Christians are often afraid of the book they're intimidated by the book of Romans and I would hope that as we launch into the book of Romans, you become uh, very comfortable with the book and you become friends with that book because it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And as I said last week, it wasn't written just to theologians. It was written to people in the pew. And it was not written to be hard to understand. It was written to understand. And it doesn't mean people always agree on everything about the book, and we'll find areas where we don't all necessarily agree on every point, but it's a wonderful book, and I trust that you'll uh, find that as rich and rewarding as as we have the book of Genesis. So, well, uh, speaking of Genesis, uh, we are in the last, uh, last few verses of chapter 50, the last 14 verses or so of chapter 50, the end of the book. And uh, and my what my intention to do is today is to look at those last 14 verses, uh, but there's a lot in there, so we may not completely finish that. But my intention is to look at those last 14 verses, uh, and then um, uh, and then next week, you know, the, over the last uh, three years and has been three years. Peggy was pointing out before some of you came in that she was looking in her Bible and she noticed that we started our study of Genesis on May 24th of 2009. <laughs> so, uh, we'll be starting our Roman study on May 20th. So, that means we've been in Genesis for 
three years, uh, as I pointed out, it's been next week's lesson will be lesson number 132 in my on my computer. So we've been walking through Genesis very slowly, as Jim pointed out. Uh, I said at the beginning that we were going to do a thorough study, if not an exhaustive one, and and I think it has been thorough. So we've been walking through it. So. Next week, what I'd like to do is to kind of take the wings of an eagle and get up over the book and just kind of fly over the book and just kind of review some of the things we've thought about and talked about over the last three years. And one thing I'd encourage you to do this week, I haven't given you a study sheet for next week. One of the things I'd encourage you to do, maybe is sit down some point this week and just kind of flip through the pages of the book of Genesis and kind of look at it and ask yourself, what have I learned? Uh, in the book as we've uh, gone through it the last three years. And because uh, I want to ask um, next week, I want to ask you if some of you have some things to share that have particularly stood out to you in the book as we've gone through it or things you've learned or things that have been particularly meaningful. I'd like to hear some of those things uh, next week. So take some time this week. Just kind of think through uh, the book as a whole. And uh, we'll see uh, next week uh, what all we've kind of see as we overview the whole book. So so that's the plan and that's uh, that's our strategy. Uh, so we are uh, for today in these last few verses uh, of chapter 50 and it really is a meaningful passage. Um, it's uh, in some ways, I think there's a verse in here that in some ways summarizes the entire book of Genesis. And uh, and it's a and it's a passage that communicates to us some of the some of the very basic elementary issues of the gospel. And so it really is a it's a very meaningful and a very rich passage. And it's a wonderful way, in my mind, to to uh, end the book of Genesis. But um, let's pick it up in. Uh, uh, well, before we do that, we haven't reviewed yet. So let's go back and kind of think, what are some of the things we talked about last week that you remember? in the first half of the chapter. Okay. Go do it. Yeah. Take all this with you. Yeah. Take all my advisors and everybody and go. Yeah. Yeah, he obviously had a lot of confidence in Joseph that he that he'd bring everybody back. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Really big and a long one, too. <laughs> they mourned for Jacob for nearly three months. So, yeah. Well, what do you, what do you, why, do you, why do you think all these advisors went? Did you get rid of them for a while? Well, I was looking through this. Um, you suggested that it was the influence of Jacob, and I tended to think it's the influence of Joseph. Mm-hmm. You read through all these verses, it's all from pretty much from Joseph's perspective. Joseph did this, and then Joseph did that, and then mm-hmm. Joseph and his brothers did this, mm-hmm. and so forth. And it's he is, I think he's the guy with the influence, and that's why the advisors went. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, it was to support him. Okay. We, I, you know, we do the same thing these days. We yep. go to a funeral or whatever, or a wedding, and to support the people that we know that, yes. which may or may not be the one who's at the center of attention. So yes. So, so I think that has a lot to do with it. It's, uh, it's what happened to Joseph, and then how he influenced all those people around him, mm-hmm. and what he did. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. What else? Right. And they look at Joseph, and if you look at the man that Joseph became, and yeah. they credit the yeah. father for that. Yeah. yeah. And so, if, if nothing else, you have to extrapolate that Joseph is this often awesome a person, mm-hmm. father has to be mm-hmm. a Yeah, and I think that's probably some of what's going on, just a recognition that this great man Joseph is, comes from uh, from Jacob, and so Jacob is obviously revered for that reason, if for no other reason. Yeah, yeah. 
One of the things we pointed out last week is that this story in, uh, about Jacob's death and the mourning for him and the burial is really unique and there's nothing else like it in Scripture. There may have been other funerals and mournings and burials that were similar, but they aren't told to us. They aren't described to us. And so the question that I posed to you last week is, why does the Holy Spirit devote this much time to focusing on this remarkable funeral for Jacob? What are some of the things we talked about in that regard? We talked about the uh, at the time that this would have been read to the children after the yeah. Exodus, mm-hmm. they looked at uh, Egypt as being enemies, mm-hmm. and this kind of shows them another perspective that they were buddies, so to speak, yeah. at one time yeah. they were on our side. Yeah. 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 So maybe they're they're just people. Yeah. Yeah. It gives yeah it gives the children of Israel a better perspective. You know, not that their perspective was wrong; they had been slaves, but it gives them a, a broader perspective of the whole history of the Egyptian experience and puts it in a little bit different context. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing uh, for them to see. What else? What does this funeral mark? Pardon? The end of the patriarch. It's the conclusion of the patriarchal era. And and one of the things we talked about was that was that the beginning of the patriarchal era, you know, we go back to Genesis chapter end of Genesis chapter eleven, the beginning beginning of Genesis chapter twelve, and it's very you know, you have this obscure man in an obscure place and God comes and speaks to him and gives him this promise, and so the beginning of this this grand patriarchal period is really kind of a small, obscure beginning. But over the period of a couple hundred years, I didn't actually add up the time, a couple hundred, 250 years or so, over this period of time that these three men live, uh, we see that this, we see how God works over a period of time to create and, and do this marvelous work that He's going to do. So it really is kind of a grand conclusion to the patriarchal era. And, and helps us see how things often begin small and all we have is the promise of God and we have nothing more than that. But if we persevere in faith and if we continue in faith, ultimately we see the fulfillment of God's promises. And of course, there's much more yet to be fulfilled of what God promised Abraham but at least now, by the, by the time that Jacob dies, we're beginning to see the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's just a very important marker uh, in the redemptive story. Anything else from last week you want to mention? A little bit of a contrast, I'm just going to think in the end of Exodus, how detailed this is. In the first chapter of Exodus, it jumps all these years and says, okay, they were there, they increased, they multiplied greatly, and then Pharaoh came up and didn't know them and slaves. And about how, how long it was, you know, they were there 400 years, but you don't know how long they were prospering before they became slaves. Right. And it's just real vague. So there's so much detail here. And then, uh, you know, and actually, that's, that is kind of a... Uh, that's kind of an interpretive tool that I use, and I don't know if you've noticed that. That that sometimes it's striking to me, and I and I, and I use it to make me stop and think as I'm going through various passages of scripture. It's 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 very instructive to me the kinds of things that God doesn't tell us, you know, that He just leaves out because it's not important. And then the other things that you wouldn't necessarily think of being all that important that He spends so much time on, like the funeral of the funeral of Jacob. And so so I kind of, I I tend in my as I approach scripture, I tend to use those as flags. Little you know, little landmark flags that say, hey, pay attention to this. Because if we have if we have uh, where uh, as you mentioned where he just kind of jumps over four hundred years and you know and if that happens I go, well, well why? You know, why does God just jump over all that? 
and 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 I and I stop and I think about that, and that helps me reflect on scripture. And then I'll run into something else where he just it seems like he's belaboring the point. Classic example of this is in the story of uh, uh, of when Abraham sent uh, his servant to find a wife for Isaac, and he goes and he finds Rebecca. And the narrator tells this whole elaborate detail about how he goes to the well and Rebecca comes to the well and, and this whole elaborate... And it goes on for know, 20, 25 verses or so. And you go, okay, I got the story down. Then the servant goes to Rebecca's house and the narrator records it all over again with the servant telling the story. And he goes through almost verbatim, word for word. There are some, There is some difference. But he tells the whole story over all over again. And it's like the Holy Spirit is just belaboring this story. And uh, so I use those kind of things as, as, as kind of flags to make me stop and think and go, okay, now why is he... Why is he belaboring this point? Is there something here the Holy Spirit's trying to get through my thick skull that that I might tend to gloss over? So, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting aspect of that that you point out. Well, you know, they just Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is a question, and I've asked myself that question many times in the last few weeks as we've gotten to this point of the story. You know, well, why don't they just go home? Uh, and uh, but obviously, you know, God somehow is providentially working to keep me. We talked about that a little bit last week. In fact, that after the funeral they went back to Egypt, and we did talk about that. And we'll talk about it a little bit more today if we get that far in our lesson. And if not, we'll talk about it next week. But that's a you know, that's a good question, and all we can say about that and answer to that really ultimately is is that we don't know the answers why they didn't go back, but clearly God was somehow providentially working because of two things that He said He was going to accomplish during this 400-year period of time. Or four, two things that needed to be accomplished before they could go back. Remember what those were? What are the two things that needed to happen before Israel could go back? Okay, the, the sins and the wickedness of the Amorites needed to be fulfilled, and that was one of them. And what was the other? A, which was? Yeah, he said 400 years, yeah. But during that time, what was going to be happening? They would become a great nation, yeah. So there are these two aspects. The, the wickedness of the Amorites has to be fulfilled and they need to become a great nation. And those are two, the two kind of uh, factors that need to be completed before they can leave Egypt and go back into Canaan. Yeah. Just, just how my personal experience, you don't just wake up some morning and say, I think I'm going to go back. There's usually a jolt. Yeah. Turns. Yeah. Something happens. Yeah. Because you get set in your pattern like the mm-hmm. Israelites do. You're comfortable there. Why go in? Yeah. Yeah, we we become averse to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, let's pick up the story then in verse uh, 14. And as I said, we'll get as much done as we can today, uh, and then next week we'll finish what we don't do today, and we'll and we'll kind of do an overview. So, uh, verse 15 actually. He says, "When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said." What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father, And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants or slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. 
So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also, the sons of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Okay? Well, so we pick up the story. They've had this big funeral procession to Egypt or to Canaan and come back. Uh, Actually, uh, at least one of the commentators that I consulted thinks that this whole discussion or interaction between the brothers that we're talking about today may have actually happened during this trip back from Egypt. That it may have been uh, may have been quite quick after their father's death that they began to fret about these things. But the brothers, uh, uh, as soon as they see that Jacob is dead, uh, they begin to fret. And they begin to worry about something. And, and they take action to try to remedy the situation. What are they worried about? They're worried about Joseph's Okay. They're worried that now that Jacob's out of the way, that Joseph is going to feel free to take the retribution that he has always wanted to take. Okay. Uh, why are they thinking this? What their period is the entire time. Okay. Because that's a normal human emotion. The normal emotion? That's the way God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, as opposed to us doing it ourselves. Okay. Okay. It is very normal. We actually have a case, uh, we have an example of somebody. Uh, who decided that he really wanted to get revenge, but he had to wait till Dad died. Who was that? Esau. Esau. Yeah, remember Esau was going to kill Jacob there when he was, you know, right after he lost the birthright and the blessing, and he was determined he was going to kill uh, Jacob. But he said, "Well, I got to wait till Dad's dead," and he thought Dad was going to die pretty soon. Fortunately for Jacob, Dad didn't die soon, and it gave uh, Esau time to get over his his anger, but. Uh, brothers, pardon? Do the brothers took revenge for their yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good example. Uh, so, so they have experience with this idea of, of harboring bitterness and harboring revenge, but that still doesn't totally answer the question. Let's go. Let's go back to this whole story of the reconciliation of the family. What what happened back there? Chapters 42, 43, 44, 45, that whole story about the brothers coming to Egypt. And, you know, what, what transpired back there? Okay. Okay. And what kind of leadership did he provide? Okay. Certainly, he provided remarkable leadership, and uh, and he uh, and it's very clear. And I was, you know, I, I say this as clear as I could as we were going through that passage. That I think it's very clear these brothers have repented. They have changed. They are different. They're not thinking and acting like they did back in those earlier years when Joseph was younger, and 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 they are determined that they are not going to sacrifice Benjamin's life for their own safety and for their own uh, prosperity. Uh, and, 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 and Judah steps in the gap and he offers himself in, in Benjamin's place. And, and you see the compassion and the concern that the brothers had for their father and what would happen to their father if anything happened to Benjamin. So the guys have clearly changed. And that, and that was one of the things that Joseph needed to determine 
Which is why he went through all that elaborate testing of the brothers that he went through. Was to find out, have my brothers changed? And when he became satisfied that his brothers had changed, then, then, he, then he believed, it felt obviously, that it was time for him to disclose himself. And so he reveals to them who he actually is. And he says, I am Joseph. Okay? And what was the brother's reaction when he said, I am Joseph? They were scared, okay? And it was obvious they were scared. And so what did Joseph tell them? Chapter 45, if you need to cheat. Pardon? Okay. Uh, actually, now that's what he says today. He didn't say it quite that way then. But what he did say was he said, don't fret, don't, don't whip yourselves for what you did. He says, because you didn't send me down here, God sent me down here. So he clearly tells the brothers, listen, don't, don't fret about what you did. Okay? You, you didn't send me down here to Egypt. God, and so he recognizes, he acknowledges to the brothers, and he tells the brothers, one, that he doesn't want them beating themselves up over what they did. This is all in chapter 45. He doesn't want them beating themselves up over what they did, and it wasn't them that sent him to Egypt. It was really God that sent him to Egypt. Okay? And so quite clear, it's quite clear that Joseph has forgiven his brothers because he sees that they have repented. Okay? Now here we are 17 years later. And, and the brothers are now thinking maybe Joseph has all this time been really harboring this bitterness, this, this grudge against us. And he really is intending to exact the full pound of flesh out of us for what we did. And you'll notice it says, for the wrong we did. They clearly know that what they did was wrong. Why do you think the brothers... At this point, given what happened in chapter 45, why do you think the brothers still fear that Joseph is harboring a grudge? I've got two answers right here. Ron? Well, I, I think if you read back over this, they don't really know Joseph. Not really. Okay. I mean, he grew up in a totally different culture okay. from the time he was 12. Mm. He's uh, become a great leader. And it's not like once they came to Egypt, it's not like they all partied together. Mm -hmm. He was running the country. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So they only interface from time to time. So they really don't know what Okay, okay. So, so even though he's... And we'll get, I'll get to you in just a second. Even though he said all those things 17 years ago, we've had 17 years of intervening where they presumably haven't had a lot of interaction because... He's off running the country and these guys are raising sheep out on the hills and, and presumably they didn't interact. And, you know, sometimes time just gives you time to develop presumptuous thoughts about people, doesn't it? Thoughts that aren't really based in accuracy. And sometimes we forget the things we ought to remember, like the things he told them before. Uh, I think there may be something else going on behind you also because you got the loss of your father, which... To a child, the loss of a parent can be extremely traumatic. When you're going through that kind of grief or that kind of this emotional upheaval, you're extremely vulnerable to Satan. And I think that's one of the darts that he yeah. He brings that Satan is really good at bringing up your own history and using it against you. Yeah. And I think that may be yeah. part of it as well. Another oh. opportunity to try to put things. Okay. Yeah, Gary. How much of the story that he knew about the best stuff he saw coming with? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, if he was going to get them, he probably wouldn't because, I mean, he, he loves his father. I mean, he was his father's favorite, so they got a close relationship. His father loves his other kids, obviously, so he's not going to do something that's going to kill bad sons or something like that. Yeah. That's why. So if yeah. he was going to do it, this would be the time. Yeah. Yeah, it all makes perfect sense. <laughs> I would suggest to you that all, all the things you said are probably could be factors and, and I think are valid points. But I would suggest to you there's something else going on here as well. 
Why do they still feel guilty? I mean, they've been forgiven. They've repented and they've been forgiven. Why do they still feel guilty? I think the reason they still feel guilty is because what was striking to me when we went through that story in Genesis 44 and, and, and back, back there, the whole section there, that they never once told Joseph that they had wronged him. They never said to Joseph, Joseph, we sinned against you. Now, they did in Joseph's presence say it. And Joseph overheard them. But they didn't know that he understood them. So they never explicitly, can we use this term, named it and claimed it with Joseph. Yeah, we have the health, wealth, and prosperity people talk about naming it and claiming it. And I think they're completely off base. But I tell you, I think there is something we need to learn to name and claim. And that's our sin and our guilt. And this is one thing they had never done. And because they had never said to Joseph openly, explicitly, and convincingly, we know we have wronged you, we have sinned against you, we have transgressed against you, will you forgive us? They never said that. And because they never completely articulated it and were satisfied that it was all out in the open with Joseph, they never really got the message of forgiveness that was there all along from Joseph. And, and I would suggest that that's kind of analogous to our own experience with God. Oftentimes, I think as believers, even though we have repented, even though we have been forgiven, we oftentimes kind of walk around with this cloud of our head thinking God's got something against us. Does anybody else have that experience? Well, yeah, not only that, the more mature I become as a Christian, uh, I believe that's the case. <laughs> Hopefully. But, yeah, but the more I see that, and it's not that I see the cloud, but the more I see the, the depth of the gravity yeah. that is the potential in, yeah. in, in what God's actually given. So I have a clearer perspective, and you wonder if some of that may have happened to yeah. them. Yeah. As they grew more mature, they said, wow, all he did was really bad. Yeah. We thought it was bad before, but now we really see. Yeah. In addition yeah. to what you're saying, you add all that together. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the formula for needing to repent some more. And, and I think that one of the lessons I draw from this is the importance in our relationship with God to lay it all on the line. You notice how they worded here? Of course, they put the words in their father's mouth, but they're really saying this. Our transgression, our sin, and our wrong. I mean, they're, they're just getting it out there. They're, they're using, as one commentator says, the full semantic range to articulate how wrong they were. And, and there's much, to, you know, I, I think as Christians, sometimes we can we can fall into the mistake of thinking God's going to forgive us because we do so much penance over our sin. And that's not what I'm, I'm not suggesting penance here. But what I am suggesting is that I think, we can, I think we can get better in touch with how forgiven we are when we've taken the time to really name it and claim it in regard to the things and the areas in which we've offended God. To say, God, I know this is where I have sinned. This is where I know I have wronged you. I know I have sinned against you. I know I have transgressed against you in this area or in this area or in this area. And it's when we know that it's all on the table and then we hear his words of forgiveness, we know, even though it was true all along, we experience more fully that sense of his forgiveness because we know we had it out there on the table for him. So, so I think there's great merit in us taking the time in our lives 
to fully acknowledge to God the depths of our sin in order that we can more fully experience the depth and know the depth of His forgiveness and the totality of His forgiveness. But they had not done that earlier. Uh, it just kind of all been, you know, it's all okay, you know, and it was okay. Except that the brothers didn't have that full sense of Joseph's forgiveness. And so over the years, this suspicion builds about Joseph's motives. Okay. Okay. Now you're making an assumption there. What's the assumption you're making? It may be a true assumption, but you're making an assumption, an assumption I've always made. What is your assumption in what you just said? Does anybody see what his assumption was? That the brothers are lying. Okay. Well, I don't know if they're lying or not. Yeah, I guess it is. It's not. It's not stated, is it? We don't know whether the brothers are lying. I've always assumed the brothers were lying till this week. <laughs> I don't know if they're lying or not, if he told them or not, but the, the idea is they're trying to bring daddy into the thing. It's almost like the kids are in a fight and say, Well, mommy told you not to hit me, but I hit you, but if I hit you first, okay. you not to hit me back. Okay, now that's an excellent point. We need to address that. Okay, but before we do, so don't let me get by without addressing that. Before we address that, let's address the question of whether or not the brothers are telling the truth. Huh? How do we know? Okay. How many of you have always thought that the brothers were bluffing here? How many of you thought the brothers were telling the truth? Okay. Well, that's kind of where the commentators are. They're all over the place. On this. Okay. They're, but I've always assumed that the brothers were bluffing here. Okay. And, and, uh, and I'll give you a reason to think that here in just a minute. But one of the reasons I always thought the brothers were bluffing is because I thought, well, if Jacob really wanted Joseph to forgive his brothers, why didn't he tell Joseph instead of the brothers? Right? But it suddenly occurred to me this week, well, Jacob would have very good reason to tell the brothers rather than Joseph. Because Jacob probably understood the principle we just talked about. You've got to own your sin. So there would be good reason for Jacob to say to the brothers, you guys go and you acknowledge the sin and you ask Joseph to forgive you and you tell him that that's what I want. I want him to forgive you. But in telling the brothers to go, he's forcing the brothers to openly acknowledge to Joseph they're wrong. So there would be good reason for Jacob to have done it this way rather than the way that I would think I would. I would have just said, well, Joseph, forgive your brothers. But Joseph's already forgiven his brothers. So that really doesn't accomplish anything. But by telling the brothers to go, it forces the brothers to get it out on the table. Okay? You know, there's a point where mediators do the thing that the person responsible has to ultimately do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so in one sense, it would make perfect sense for Jacob to do what the brothers claim that he did or say that he did. Okay. The problem I have with that is what is the reason the narrator gives for the brothers sending the message? They saw their father was dead. Okay. And their fear. So they saw their brother was dead. And they... So the reason they sent the message was not because their father told them to, but because they were afraid. Right. So I still lean towards the opinion that the brothers have fabricated a story here. Okay? Which brings us back to, to my... It kind of goes back if he had told them to do that. Like, they'll do it now. It's not like 17 years or years. Well, I would assume he did it towards the end. It's, you know, but there again, I, so I, yeah, uh, over... Because to me, uh, because past actions are the best Predictor of future results. Okay. 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 So the so the point then coming back to Mike's original point was okay these brothers aren't totally in the clear yet. 
and I think there's much to be said for that. Uh, I think the brothers have repented of what they did. They have clearly changed in regard to what they did. How they handled the situation with Benjamin exemplifies they think differently and they act differently. When, when placed in a difficult situation, they act differently. But, <laughs> it's a big but, we have this situation where they now, they're now kind of over the barrel again and, and I personally believe that they fabricated the story. Whether you do or not, there's still lessons to be learned either way you view it. But my personal conviction is they fabricated the story. And I think there's a lesson there. That even when we're trying to do good, we often bungle it. Right? Even when we're trying to do the right thing, we often mess up because we're sinners. Which one of you came to Christ out of pure motives? I sure didn't. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, just my point. Just my point. As pure as you could. And so, yeah, I, I don't commend the brothers for lying here. And I think they did. And they're clearly trying to cover their, you know, they're clearly trying to protect their own skin and protect their families. Of course. So, I don't commend them for that. But I do think it is a good thing that they're finally going to own up. And they do own up. So, what, so even though they apparently fabricate this story about their father's words, what is significant is the words they put in their father's mouth. And the words they put in their father's mouth is a clear indication of how seriously wrong they know they were. And so, while I don't commend them for how they went about this, uh, they're obviously trying to leverage Joseph here a little bit, using, using his father. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, I don't commend that at all. I'm just glad they finally came. And I'm glad they got it on the table. And I'm glad they said, we were really wrong. We really sinned against you. And we transgressed against you. Now, what is interesting to me, and this goes back to Mike's point, is, is because they weren't secure in the forgiveness that Joseph had already extended to them, rather than just simply coming and asking, will you forgive, me? Will you forgive us? They tried to leverage forgiveness out of Joseph. And there again, that's instructive, isn't it? How oftentimes do we do that with God? How oftentimes when we're feeling under that cloud that, you know, God's still got something against us, that we think the way to deal with that is to leverage Him. So we use our good works or we use this or we use that and we, just, and we fail to recognize just the overwhelming affectionate compassion with which He loves us. And that there's nothing God rather, would rather do in all the world than forgive us of our sins. And he, because he just, He's just full of affection and love to us. And that's, that's Joseph. Joseph loves his brothers. Don't ask me why. <laughs> but he loves them. And he, he delights to take care of them. And he has no intention of doing them harm. But the brothers operating under this cloud think somehow they've got to use some kind of a fulcrum or a lever or something to get Joseph to forgive them. And so they come with this story about their dad. And, and how oftentimes when I come to God for forgiveness do I feel I have to leverage it? Rather than just simply coming to Him and saying, God, I transgress, I've sinned, I've wronged You. I need Your forgiveness. 
Would you forgive me? And of course, in a theological sense, it's all said and done already, right? It was all done at the cross. I typically, uh, you know, this is my thing. I don't know where you are theologically and all this, but I don't ask God for forgiveness typically anymore. I thank Him for it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with you completely that that's exactly what's happening when Joseph weeps. I think he's weeping when he sees his brother's suspicions of his motives. Wrong. And now they come to him and he finds that all this time that they've 
they've fought these thoughts about him and his heart is grieved and he weeps. And, and, and as Mike pointed out, I just, I, I just, you know, it's such a clear picture to us of what we do to the heart of God. You know, we all know that scripture about not grieving the Holy Spirit. And we think about all these various ways that we grieve the Holy Spirit or we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, I would suggest to you this is the way we can grieve the Holy Spirit. When we, through unbelief, lose sight of the forgiveness and the grace and the love and the compassion of God. As I was meditating on this and thinking on this yesterday, I was thinking, how oftentimes have I added sin to sin? Because not only have I sinned against God, but I have grieved Him by not believing in His compassion and His forgiveness. And how often have I caused the Son of God to weep because of thought that God has not forgiven me. Now, of course, now let's be honest. You know, we would never say as good, you know, entrenched Baptists, we would never say, well, I don't think God forgave me because, you know, we know that theologically that's not an acceptable thing to say. But we live like that. We operate, as I say, under this cloud instead of walking in the joy and the blessing and the gratitude of knowing that my sins are completely washed away and I stand complete and perfect as His Son in His presence. Instead of walking in that, and, and as the Scripture says, to whom much is given, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, he who is forgiven much loves much. And, and so my love is actually, towards God is actually hindered because I've lost sight of how much I've been forgiven. And if I could reflect and enjoy and delight in how much I've been forgiven, how much more my love for God would show. But I add sin to sin by not only sinning, but then by failing to embrace the forgiveness that's offered me in His Son. Well, uh, just we'll go on just a little bit here more, but we'll, we'll not try to finish this today. And we'll finish it next week and, and then finish our overview of Genesis. But... But so Joseph weeps, and then what does he say? When the brothers come and they bow down before him, and actually, when he weeps there, I think actually he's weeping at the message, at the message he received, at the presence of the messengers. And then the brothers come and they fall down and they say, "We are your servants or your slaves." And then what does Joseph say? For I am I in God's place? Why did he say that? What do you mean? Excuse me? Okay. Now let's be careful here. He is judging them. Because he very clearly calls what they did wrong, right? So he is making a value assessment on what they did, right? Because he, because, he, because he very clearly identifies you meant it for evil, right? So he clearly identifies what they did is wrong. So when we use the term judging, we need to make sure we know what we're talking about because, you know, the world always says don't judge, you know. And, and, but clearly he's passing a value judgment on what they did. It's evil. But what is it that he can't do because he's not God? He cannot take revenge. What he can do is he can extend forgiveness. And as you all know, because we've talked about this many times, that forgiveness is given to those who repent. Okay. So when a person repents, 
we not only can, but we are obligated to forgive. Regardless of how much we've been hurt. But we are always prohibited from retribution. Now, this gets a little intricate, a little difficult. What is forgiveness? And and I ask that question because we all think we know what it is. But... But we've messed up our whole thinking about forgiveness so much, I don't think we even know what it is. So we throw this term out and we say, you know, and, and we say, well, you know, you just need to forgive everybody. What do we mean? What is forgiveness? Okay. Pardon? Forgetting. Okay. Forgetting what? Okay, have you ever forgotten an offense? I haven't. <laughs> I mean, I forget the little ones. But the big ones, I haven't forgotten. Even if I've forgiven them, I, I can still remember they happened, right? That's the hard thing to think about God who knows everything, who uh, doesn't have a new thought, but he says, your sins I will remember no more as far as the east and the west and and so forth. So until you're thinking, okay, how does he... How does he do that? Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it means that he I don't think it means that he cognitively no longer is aware that you did it. I don't think it means that. Hey, Gary. For me it's not even helping helping the person do the right thing. Okay. 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 How about God who uh, does not forgive the unrepentant sinner? Does he harbor ill will to them? You have to say no. Exactly. Does he love them? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So we know one thing for certain: love and forgiveness are two different things. You got to get them separated in your mind. You cannot think clearly about either when you think they are the same thing. They are not. So, love or forgiveness is not loving someone. Because Jesus says specifically, you are to love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. So, even those we've not forgiven, we are obligated to love. To pray for, to treat with kindness. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is releasing the debt. Forgiveness is releasing the debt. Forgiveness is saying, you don't owe me anything on this and you don't owe God anything on this. As far as I'm concerned, you don't owe God anything on this. Sorry, I just hit my mic. Four people listening to this are going <laughs> to... Forgiveness is releasing that legal obligation. Now, we're speaking of relational sin here. We're not talking about civil offenses. Okay, that's another... We're talking about violating civil or social law. That's another issue altogether. We're not talking about that. We're talking about relational offense and relational sin. And it is, it is releasing a person from any obligation or debt to you. But here's the tricky thing. When, when someone stands in a position with me of, of still not being forgiven, I have not forgiven them. That means I have not released them from their debt. And there are important reasons why I should not do that. 
It actually works counter to the gospel of Christ if I release somebody from their debt who has not repented. Okay. So there are important reasons why I not release someone from their debt to me if they have sinned against me and not repented or asked for forgiveness or however you want to put it. But not releasing somebody from their debt to me is not synonymous with taking retribution on them. All right? Because I am specifically prohibited from taking retribution on someone because that is only God's prerogative. It is never my prerogative to take retribution. Now, you know that. And I know that. So, so I say, well, I don't do that. Well, what, what was the last time somebody spoke to you with harsh words and then you retaliated in harsh words? Have you not taken retribution? When someone's said something to you that's hurt and you just bite right back, <clears throat> is that not taking retaliation? You know what? This is the fascinating thing about retribution. There's only so much room for it. And when you step into that place, you push God out. Isn't that what Paul says? Leave room for the wrath of God. He says, do not take your own vengeance, but rather leave room for the wrath of God. And when I step into the place of taking retribution for something someone did to me, I push God out and he can no longer do it. Yeah. In our house, uh, we refer to that as remaining blameless because our children, when one of them will be chat, they'll get into a little argument and we'll, we'll know where it came from and we know who caused it. We pull them off to the side. We start chastising them and the other one feels like they have to contribute. <laughs> and that's what we turn around and look at them when we say, remain blameless. Yeah. Because there's been a few times you are correct. They yeah. have stepped into it. Yeah. You're now in it. Yeah. So yeah. you want yeah. part of this, you're going to get part of yeah. <laughs> So the fascinating thing about Joseph here is he understands this principle and he hasn't even read the book of Romans. And he understands this principle. I am not in the place of God. This is God's business, not mine. My job is to forgive you and you've repented and I've done it. Well, we'll finish this passage next week. And, and look at the rest of Genesis.